You're listening to a Sunday sermon from Seven Mile Road Church in Melrose, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. To check out more about us, go to sevenmilemelrose.com. What we just read in Luke chapter 20, verse 9, is the last parable that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke. This is the last one. Jesus is one week out from his crucifixion, and he tells what is a very relatable and prophetic story. It's relatable in that it's easy to understand. It's prophetic in that before he is killed, he is here stating that he is going to be killed. So Jesus knows the future. Jesus knew he was the landlord's son sent to die. Now, as we get into the story, some of you, depending on your personal experience with landlords might need to reorient your thinking around the landlord being in the right and the tenants being in the wrong. Personally, I've had okay relationships with my landlords in the past, but I have an intimate knowledge of a bad tenant that fits the mold of Jesus' parable here, and it might help us get in the right mind state for the story. So I'm going to tell you that. I moved to Melrose from Bill Ricca. The first, owned, the first house that we owned was in Billerica. And the house was a foreclosure and was so disgusting and smelled so bad that when we walked through it, I didn't know if we should buy the house. I thought the only way to fix this house is to burn it to the ground. We get the house and I meet my neighbor and eventually I find out he's a regular guy and I ask him, what was the deal with the house? Why was it like that? What happened? Well, he said that the owners got foreclosed on, that I knew. They didn't, they couldn't make the mortgage payments. And when they got foreclosed on, there was a tenant living in the house, renting from them. Now it started to make sense. Maybe the tenant was part of the problem. He told me for a year, the guy lived in the house, rent-free. So by the time the bank gets involved and figures it out and gets the authorities involved, it took more than a year to remove this guy from the property. But that didn't explain the smell. So I asked him, pray tell the smell, my good fellow. And he explained that the guy was a dog sitter. And he would take on 10 dogs at a time and leave them locked in the great big family room like he was a bad guy in a children's novel. To prove the horror of this man, he told me, my neighbor told me that he took in a newlywed couple's dog that was going on their honeymoon, and he lost it. They came back from their honeymoon, poof, the dog's gone, vanished from the face of the earth. This guy that thought and acted like he had gotten rid of the landlord and did whatever he wanted to do with the house, what should the bank do to this tenant? This rent-free dog loser, I'm not being mean, literally lost someone's dog. They should get him out. He wouldn't pay. He ruined the prior owner. It wasn't his house. He destroyed the value. He lost a honeymooner's dog. He acted like the landlord was dead. What should the landlord do? Justice demands he kicks him out that he gets kicked out. This is the story that Jesus tells us in Luke 20. What we see in this story today is that God is long-suffering in his love, more so than the bank that took a year, and that God is just in his judgment 
more so than the bank that eventually evicted the prior tenant. The point of the story that the leaders missed, and I've been praying that we wouldn't miss this today, is that God is long-suffering in his love. He's just in his judgment because Jesus is the cornerstone, meaning Jesus is the main point. Jesus is the most important part of anything and everything. So now we can work through the story. We're in Luke chapter 20, verse 9, and you'll have these words on your screen. So a man owns land and he plants a vineyard. He has the legal right to this, to do this. It's his land, and he decides that he would like to get grapes from this land. So he goes through the trouble of investing in it and prepping it, and he sets it up so that it could produce what he intends for it to produce. He can do that. But because he has other matters to attend to, he can't live on the vineyard. So he contracts with tenant farmers. Apparently, this is still a thing today. I visited a farm not long ago that was like this, where a young family was under a contract to live at a farm that wasn't theirs. They got to take care of the farm, care for the animals, plow the land, plant the fields. They were tenant farmers. They don't own the farm, but they're under contract to live on the farm. They get the benefits of the farm. It's a great setup. This is what our landlord in Jesus' story does. He finds what he thinks are good and capable farmers, and he contracts them to manage his vineyard. They make an agreement. They sign a contract. The owner gets a portion of what they can grow, what they can make there. They get all the benefits of living on the land. So moving on, the next verse, verses 10 through 12. Now the vineyard is ready. It's ready to produce. Jesus says it is time. So the landlord sends some trusted delegates for what should be a routine transaction in accord with everyone already agreed to at the start. But instead of keeping their end of the agreement, they hurt the landlord's delegates. They pain them. They shame them. They send them away without any fruit. This happens three times. So already those listening to Jesus are shocked. Right? Maybe we're shocked too. Now, we know this is just an illustration that Jesus is telling, but would anyone actually act this way? Well, it's true that there is a sin principle ingrained inside of the human condition that states that people will often do whatever they think is best for them, even if it is at the expense of others. And we see this principle dramatized, dramatized in the story today. But it's easy to prove. Imagine that all taxes were voluntary. I know some of you love paying your taxes. They're voluntary. How much would you pay? The Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Laura and I walked up to the counter to pay. And when we get up to the counter and we ask how much is it to get in, the person standing at the counter said it's free, but there's a recommended donation of $30 a person. We side-eyed each other like this. How much do you think I gave? It wasn't 60. It wasn't zero. Pride would not allow for that. It was probably something like 10. If there wasn't someone standing at the counter providing a buffer of guilt between me and the entrance, <laughs> yes, the donation would have been zero. Now, this is slightly different, but the point that we should understand from ourselves 
is that there is something in us that is naturally bent towards doing what is best for us. Now, this, in varying degrees, is sin in us. There is sin in everyone ever born after Adam. It bends us towards self-interest. It's why we need laws and governments and contracts and rulers to enforce these things. If God was to remove his Holy Spirit from us, and everyone, everyone in, in it would only act as the tenants acted in the story. It is the common grace on us that provides a restraining work to keep us in the earth from being as bad as it would be or we would be without God's grace. So Jesus is telling a story of depraved tenants who are way deep in it at this point, and they think it is better to hurt the landlord's delegates rather than make good on the agreement. Now, if you're the landlord and you're dealing with this, what do you do? You send three of your people, they've been badly hurt, and they've been sent away empty-handed. What I think you do at this point is you, you call the boys, you grab the swords, you mount the horses, and you go and you drive out and evict those worthless tenants with force. But in the next verse, verse 13, we see that that is not what the landlord does. The landlord in Jesus' story is what the Bible calls long-suffering. The landlord is the type that does not give up on people, does not hit eject too quickly, gives a long rope to committed offenses, does not meet the first, the second, the third offense with wrath. He is patient under offenses. And what he decides to do is send the tenants, the person, that he loves the most, the heir to the property, his own flesh and blood. Surely they will see his commitment to the arrangement when they meet his son. So now verse 14, when they saw him, they said, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Now we get to see the motive. They don't want a landlord. They want to be the landlord. By killing the son, they think that they've removed the landlord from their lives. Now, this story has been repeated over and over in history. This is a violent new regime, takes over what isn't theirs by force. One person or group takes something that another person or group is using. The meaner, bigger, bolder toddler walks over to the meek, smaller, shyer toddler and takes what they have from their hand. One laughs, one cries. Now that works in so far as there isn't someone else around who is bigger, badder, more powerful to exact justice, to set things back to right. And the story Jesus is telling is a story of a landlord who is around, who is bigger, who is badder, who isn't defeated, who isn't dead. And he's going to come back and face the tenants who have now murdered his son. Now, Jesus concludes the story by asking this very simple question. The next slide. What will the landlord do now after all this? And on the screen is a no-brainer conclusion. No one in their right mind, after having heard this story, would argue that the tenants were right, that the landlord is wrong that the landlord should just 
count his losses and give up and walk away and admit defeat. Let the tenants rule as lords of his land. No, he's going to go back to his land and evict the tenants. Jesus uses this word destroy. The landlord is going to scorched earth the farm. And when he is done, he's going to give the farm to real tenants who will enjoy the farm, appreciate the arrangement. Now that's the end of the story Jesus tells. And before we get to the crowd's reaction to the story and Jesus' big idea for telling it in the first place, we need to interpret the story theologically. What does this story mean? Why did Jesus tell it? So we're going to do two quick big Bible points that the Bible gives us over and over again that we can pull directly from this story and help us understand the text. The first one is this. God is the good landlord. The man who planted the vineyard and put the farmer, the tenant farmers on his land in the story is God. No big surprise there. The Jews listening to Jesus know that God is landlord as related to their nation Israel. God had called Abraham and gave him a promise. From Abraham, he had specifically formed and made his people Israel. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt, gave them contract promises, and planted them in a promised land. God is their vineyard, and they are the vineyard that he planted. And their leaders were to tend and care for the vineyard under the terms of the contract. Now, this is the same arrangement that goes all the way back to the beginning of creation, and it is true for the rest of the world. God as landlord is a fact of the universe. God made the earth. In Genesis, he made a garden. Call it a vineyard. And then he made Adam and Eve, and he put them in the vineyard, and he gave them a farm and gave them a contract. Adam and Eve were the first tenant farmers. All that there is is God's stuff. He is the landlord. And we born from Adam through Eve live on the land that God owns. The Bible says it like this. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't just literally own cattle on exactly and only a thousand hills. He owns all the cattle, all the hills, all the grass, all the dirt, all the everything. It's his. The clothes you wear, the car you drive, the house you have, the bones in your body. It's God's stuff. He owns everything. He's the universe's landlord. But we need to add an adjective to this. God is not a grumpy landlord begrudgingly giving us, his tenants, the use of his stuff. Yes, all the stuff is his, but he in goodness gave it to us to manage and care for and above all, enjoy. So God is a good landlord. This is why in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God blessed them. He blessed them, and he gave them dominion. So it was out of goodness that God gave us the land. Everyone on earth is a tenant farmer of God's vineyard. And this brings us to the, set, the second point. Sinful man are bad tenant farmers. The tenant farmers in Jesus' story are the leaders of Israel. And their history shows a constant rejection of the terms of the agreement with God. 
It doesn't, how, doesn't matter how many times God would send his prophet delegates to the people to turn them back to the contract. They would not relent. They would not make good on the agreement. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 4. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets. Those verses in Jeremiah are a summary of Israel's history with God. This history of rejecting God, rejecting the covenant, persecuting the prophets who were sent to bring everyone back into right standing, repeated itself all the way down through history up to Jesus. And the leaders listening to Jesus know their Bible. They know what Jesus is saying. Now, we can't just point our finger at Israel and say, well, they're the bad, sinful tenant farmers, because Israel's history is world history. When Jesus lays bare the reality of the bad tenant farmers, he is laying to bare the reality of us all when it comes to our agreement with the landlord. When God gave Adam and Eve the farm, when God gave Israel the land, when you and me came out of the womb and stepped onto the earth, they and we stepped onto a vineyard in where we had a job to do under the terms of a contract that God gave. That is, love God, love neighbor. And none of us have been able to do this. In this regard, we're all bad tenant farmers. Now, the reason for this is sin. Right? We know this. Sin is our problem. Sin is what drives the tenant farmers of earth towards disrespect, disloyalty, selfishness, and hate for the landlord and the landlord's son. So we have these two big points. God is the good landlord, but sinful man are bad tenant farmers. And we go back to Jesus' words where he says that God is going to give the farm away. How do we respond? How do the listeners respond? It says that when they heard this, they said, surely not. Now, this is the wrong response. The right response would have been, God, forgive us, or Lord, save us, or we know, we see, we repent. An old truth teller explained their response this way. Matthew Henry wrote, it is an instance of the folly and stupidity of sinners that they proceed and persevere in their sinful ways, though at the same time they have a foresight and dread of the destruction that is at the end of those ways. Have you ever continued in a pattern of behavior or way of living where you knew that it was going to cause you harm someday, or there was something that you were supposed to do that you knew you should be doing that you just weren't doing? Flossing is a good example for most people. Even the guilt trip that is teeth cleaning appointment can't get people to floss every day. Jesus is the doctor and Israel is sitting in the dentist chair. And Jesus tells them that their teeth are placky. And they need to floss their teeth or they're going to fall out. And so, and so instead of flossing to save their teeth, they kill the doctor. Again, this is not to pick on Israel. We too are dental patients, and even though that we know that killing the doctor does no good for saving our teeth, we ignore him in our daily lives. We persist in disobedience. 
we don't love God's commandments. We test the reality of his justice. And it amounts to the same thing. We act as though God is dead. And when we are brought back to think through his wrath on our sin, like at this moment right now, we are prone to say, surely not. Now Jesus' final words are on the screen, verse 17 through 18. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is here being the prophet that he is, the true prophet, the main one, and this is his main point. He interprets scripture for those listening. He looks directly at them, and he explains the facts as they are. The landlord, as patient as he is, as much as he loves, as many opportunities as he gives, if the tenants refuse to make good on the contract, if they will go to the extent of killing his only son, if they reject this final messenger, the son Jesus who embodies God, the son who is the central figure of the universe, then the only thing left for the bad tenants is the hard justice of the contract. And in meeting that justice, it will be really bad. Jesus promises they will break to pieces. They will be crushed. Now, these are not light words, admittedly. These are God's words. These are heavy words. And we know that Israel rejected Jesus as a nation, the cornerstone, and it crushed them. The farm has been given to other tenants. The offer to make good on the contract to trust God, to believe in his son, is offered to us today in fulfillment of scripture. Now that's the story, and what I'd like to do is just draw two quick applications here as we close. The first is this, responding to the good landlord. Do you know that every week we send out an email with a sermon title and blurb for Sunday? Sarah usually sends this out. And this week I said, here's two options for a sermon title, you pick one. And because she's smarter and wiser than me, she opted for the landlord's son, which is what we had on slide one. But the title that I picked was when the landlord sends Italian Vinny with a bat because you won't pay. It probably wouldn't have been a good idea for the church to put that down in formal writing, but I'm comfortable saying it out loud. The finale of Jesus' parable, it is true, is the destruction of those who will not love and honor the son. In this case, eventually Italian Vinny does come knocking. But it is a last resort. It is a no option response from God to those who would destroy what he has made and what he loves. The character of the landlord in the story, one of the main things that we see, is that God didn't send one messenger, didn't send Two, didn't stop at three that got rejected. He keeps calling those he loves back to him. His actual desire is that those who live on his land might see that he is good and desires their good, even as they reject him. How often in our culture, even after all these years that we've had to study the wonder of God's creation, the truth of God in the face of Christ, the love by which he loves us, still view God 
as a buzzkill landlord who just wants to steal our fun and bullying us into grudging payment of rent. God is not first a justice-dispensing wrath-giver, although he is that, and let's not miss that part of the parable, but he is first and primarily good and happy and joyful. He is the good landlord or the happy landlord or the loving landlord. It's why he made himself a landlord by creating in the first place, which he didn't have to do. So what is the appropriate response to him? How do we respond to the God who made us and put us on his land and put us in control of all his stuff? The appropriate response, or at least one response, is gratitude. If the tenants of the story were of the mind to be grateful for what the landlord did for them, the story never gets told. G.K. Chesterton, who I've recently discovered and is having a great influence on me, said that in his life he had this nagging feeling that he was supposed to be grateful. Eventually he came to Christ. He wrote this, when, when we were children, we were grateful to those who filled our stockings at Christmas time. Why are we not grateful to God for filling our stockings with legs? In other words, God is the good landlord, and we are supposed to look down at our socks, see that God put legs and feet and toes in them, and say, wow, that's pretty neat. If we lose this sense of wonder and appreciation for the life that God has given us, then we start to turn into progressively worsening tenants. But if we maintain thankfulness to God in our worship, and we continually let his bigness and his goodness fill our souls, we will find our life is filled with grateful wonder. Now, gratitude would get us to a point that would bring us to the temple to worship, but we would still be standing outside the Holy of Holies. We would still have this problem of sin. We would still have this curse of being bent towards what is best for us. So that's the last point we're to make here. And it's being made a good tenant farmer. Remember that Jesus gives his listeners this recap of world history that ends with his death. And he does so prophetically. Jesus tells this story that the son is killed on the farm because Jesus is actually killed. In other words, the landlord sent his son to be killed. Jesus knows he came to die. Now, maybe we can fear God. Maybe we can honor God as our landlord. Maybe we can live with gratitude and be happy for the things that God has done for us in our lives. But we can't make ourselves good. We can't remove from our souls the stain of our sin. Now, in order to go from bad tenant farmer, which we've all been, to good tenant farmer, which only God can do, we have to grab a hold of and believe in and put our life in the cornerstone, the block that the builders rejected, the Son of God. It is simply by receiving the Son of God into our life that we can be restored to the good landlord. Jesus came to die. Jesus takes away our sins. 
this morning we can grab a hold of Jesus by faith. Would you do that with me this morning? Let's pray.